0: Welcome to the fourth episode of Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a food and queer history podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm a scholar of food, gender, feminist, and tech history and the author of the book, Ingredients for Revolution, a History of American Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffee Houses. our first episode, we talked about what feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses were and are. In the second, we talked about what feminist food is and the connections between food and gender. In the third, we talked about the ways that feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses were part of the feminist nexus and other ideas of networks. The episode included some discussion of lesbian bars, but it wasn't the focus of the episode. This episode, we will talk about lesbian, queer, and gay bars and the concept of Thirst Space. We'll be joined by sociologist Dr. Gregor Matson and Indy Mitchell of Last Call New Orleans. When I initially began my research on feminist restaurants, I was really interested in their relationship to ideas of food, paid labor, and cooking. I later saw how important these spaces could be for lesbian and questioning women to have jobs where they could be out. I intentionally did not make my research about lesbian bars, even though I have always been asked about them. There were a few reasons for doing this. The first was that other scholars were already writing about lesbian and gay bars. There's canonical texts such as Elizabeth Kennedy and Marilyn Davis's Boots of Leathers and Slippers of Gold. There's also George Chauncey's Gay New York. There's a few more. And while there's always more work to be done on this subject, it wasn't how I wanted to spend my master's and my PhD. And when I started grad school, I didn't really drink alcohol. It was so occasional, and I didn't really have a comfortable relationship with drinking and drinking cultures. During grad school, I later got into brain beer and now really enjoy going to microbreweries. But at the time, I was really not into any kind of bar culture. My disinterest in writing about lesbian bars also had to do with my own identity as a queer woman. While I first came out as bisexual at the very end of high school, I was still navigating my queer identity as bi, queer, and pansexual throughout college and into graduate school. During an oral history interview as part of my dissertation work, one of the women I interviewed looked me straight in the eye and said, while we're talking about feminist restaurants, don't lose sight of the important role of lesbians in this work. Her comment replayed in my head throughout my doctoral work on the topic of feminist restaurants. One of the Canadian feminist restaurants, based in Toronto, Ontario, that I wrote about in my MA work and a subsequent article in feminist studies was called Clementine's. On a 1974 flyer, the founders of Clementine's advertised that the space was the place we've always wanted to go but never could find. It wasn't until a few months before my doctoral defense that I even realized that I had spent all of these years, seven at that point, and now almost 11 years, writing about places I wish I could find. Sure, I had gone to visit Bloodroot when I was an undergrad in Connecticut, but I was still craving spaces, such as the ones I was writing about. I was especially interested in a queer permanent space that wasn't super alcohol focused. Now there's a bit of irony in my mentioning Clementines since it never officially opened due to zoning issues, but the subsequent Three Cups Coffee House in Toronto did rise in its wake. All this is to say that when I started my MA, doctoral research, and subsequent book, I wasn't really thinking about bars. Now, the distinction between bars and restaurants sometimes could be hard in my research, especially when I was trying to create a directory based off of ads in periodicals, mentions in travel guides, ephemera in archives such as business cards, or a stray t-shirt. I was puzzled with how to determine whether a place should be included, if it was a bar that served food, or what about a location that was a bar and restaurant. Oftentimes, places go back and forth between serving food or not. What about bars that served brunch? Guidebooks and travel guides, such as Gaia's Guide or Gaia's Guides, also had difficulty differentiating. I tended to err on the side of being more inclusive rather than less, but the idea of what makes a restaurant, bar, club, cafe, coffee house continued to pose challenges. And this question of definitions is just a constant struggle throughout the project. Furthermore, even feminist restaurants themselves during the 1970s, 1980s, and beyond also struggled with questions surrounding whether or not to serve alcohol. Some of them existed to be alternatives from the lesbian bar scene, which could be important for lesbians who are recovering alcoholics and wanting a place to socialize sober. Serving alcohol could impact the age of the clientele. And places such as the Common Woman Club in Northampton, Massachusetts, wanted little girls to be able to come, since they wanted the location to be available to all women of all ages. There are also issues with getting liquor licenses from homophobic officials. And some founders want to avoid any potential conflicts with bureaucrats. Alcohol could provide economic stability for some of these locations, though, because the markup could be better on booze than food. So while the history of feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses is not the same history as the history of lesbian bars, there are some intersections and parallels. Over the past few years, there has been a flurry of articles and videos, such as JD Sampson's Vice video about the loss of the lesbian bar. Many major cities no longer have lesbian bars. Lesbian and queer women's pop-up nights are more common, and there's been a move towards more queer-inclusive space, however, gay men still have many gay bars to choose from in many cities. There's a variety of theories that try to explain why there are so few lesbian bars left. Many of the articles on the topic come to the conclusion that having physical spaces is important for socializing, activism, and community building. These are similar themes with feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses, and across the feminist nexus with bookstores, shops, activist organizations, women's centers, and more. So today we'll be talking with some folks about lesbian, queer, and gay bars, and we'll also be talking about this idea of their space. If folks have never heard of thirst space, don't worry, it isn't a prevalent term, it's not common, it actually came from a typo in a Twitter thread by our first guest for today, Dr. Gregor Manton. There's a book by the sociologist Ray Oldenburg that's called The Great Good Place, cafes, coffee shops, bookstores, bars, hair salons and other hangouts at the heart of community. Oldenburg published this book in 1999. And in it, he argues that the first places are the home. Second places are work outside of the home. He then says that there are these things called third places, such as coffee houses, bookstores, hair salons, cafes, bars, and bistros are the public places where people can gather, put aside the concerns of home and work, their first and second places, and hang out simply for the pleasures of good community and lively conversation. He argues that they are the heart of a community's social vitality and the grassroots of a democracy. Now, it's possible to critique this framework as not accounting for work inside of the home, especially the reproductive labor, such as cooking, cleaning, childbearing, as real work, or as boring the first and second space concept. Some folks have also critiqued the book for focusing primarily on how men use third spaces. However, the main reason I'm bringing up Oldenburg is because this idea of third space really comes down to the idea that community is necessary and necessitates a place for it to happen. This brings us to Gregor Matton's May 11th, 2021 tweet, which stated, From a misspelling of Oldenburg, I present to you an urgent new concept at the intersection of urban studies and sexuality studies, thirst place. I've linked to this tweet and subsequent replies in the show notes and transcript. I just thought this tweet was great. I love that thirst space works on multiple levels. There is the pun with Oldenburg's work, thirst space, thirst space. You also have the wordplay of thirst as in drinking and also thirst as in sexual desire and hookup culture. I want to talk to Gregor about this idea of thirst space and his work on lesbian and gay bars. So that's what we're going to do today. Gregor Matson is professor and chair of sociology at Oberlin College and Conservatory, where he teaches courses on cities, sexuality, and social control. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Who Needs Gay Bars? from Redwood Press out in May 2023. His current research focuses on changes in U.S. gay bars over the past 25 years, including rising tides of LGBTQ+, equality, digital social networks, shifting drinking patterns, or changing relationships to physical places. Hi, Gregor. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to talk about this concept of thirst space with you and your work on lesbian, gay, and queer bars. Can you just Begin by introducing yourself with your name, your pronouns, if you wish, and a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure, my name is Gregor Maston. I am Chair and Professor of Sociology at Oberlin College in Ohio. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm a sociologist who studies uh, urban spaces and LGBTQ subcultures.
0: Wonderful, so why don't we just jump right in and start talking about this idea of thirst space Um, If you want to give a little bit of background on it and how, and maybe kind of speak through a little bit about how this term might provide a framework for viewing your own research on lesbian, queer, and gay bars, Um, and also maybe to expand that a bit, like, do you find Oldenburg's framing useful for your own research?
1: So uh, Ray Oldenburg was this sociologist who came up with this concept of third place, which for him were these perfectly democratic places that cities relied on for citizens to encounter each other across different. And the part of his framework that I find most useful is he said that the reason there's a the third space is the first place is the home and the second place is the workplace. And why I find that useful is for LGBTQ plus folks, most of us didn't grow up in a queer family and most of us don't work in a queer workspace. So for us, it's always been those places beyond work and beyond the natal home, that's where we had our our places. And it is certainly the case now that LGBTQ plus bars are not necessarily the, the tent pole of community, and yet they are the most common LGBTQ plus space. And so it was a typo on Twitter that came up with third space instead of third place, but to think about a place both where you drink and the pluses and minuses of having a community organized around a place that serves alcohol, but also uh, let's not forget the sex and homosexuality and bisexuality and that, you know, horniness and cruising and checking someone out and wondering, are they? Um, you know, that's a core part of the LGBTQ plus experience, and that is in these third places, the cafes where we find each other, the bookstores, the restaurants, the cafes. So um, that's why I liked, you know, this little typo and, you know, made me laugh and think. But it is definitely true that um, when I'm teaching my students, I emphasize that it is interesting for LGBTQ plus folks that our community is mainly organized around private businesses, mm. not churches, not Restaurants, it's a private business that is our public square. And there's pluses and minuses to that.
0: Yeah, there's so many great points in there that I love. And I also, when I first saw that original tweet that you made about their space, that actually was one of the reasons why I thought about doing a podcast actually, because I thought what a great thing to discuss and kind of make these connections. So uh, I really like that as an organizing concept. Um, And I really appreciate you know, talking about how we should erase the sexuality from sexuality studies um, in particular. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to study lesbian and gay bars and queer bars?
1: Sure. So my favorite gay bar closed and I was really pissed off because the developers and uh, journalists uh, who studied what or who wrote about what came after this bar. They were like dancing on its grave, and it pissed me off because mm. you know i'll I'll pause and say first, I wrote a little rant and it got published by a little local magazine, and it totally went viral, or at least it went local viral. And the developer who bought the building threatened to sue me, and he wrote emails to the president of the college saying I needed to be disciplined. Um, and I learned two things from that. One was I shouldn't have used the word gentrification because the G word is unnecessarily combative. Mm. And I should have known better because in Ohio, we don't really have a problem with gentrification. We mainly, or I should say in Northeast Ohio, Cleveland area, um, we mainly have a problem with disinvestment. So a national banking market takes local savings and looks for returns, which you can get at real estate on the coasts.
2: Mm. So there
1: isn't a lot of local money looking for returns in developing our own communities. That said, if you were going to find gentrification in Cleveland, it happened in the building that owned this gay bar. And the second thing I learned from writing this little rant was that people were really interested in LGBTQ plus spaces, not mm-hmm. just queer people, but journalists, straight people, neighbors. There was a lot of interest. And as I dug a little deeper, I realized we actually had no data. Um, you had anecdotal accounts. And here I'm talking about the United States coming mainly from big cities that have a really robust queer press, which is itself in danger. But, you know, the New York gay press publicizes every new gay bar that opens and closes. And that's available on the internet to everyone. Nobody was writing about what was going on in Ohio at the time because our local gay press had failed. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know, was what was happening in my own backyard um, representative of a trend, or was it special to Ohio? Um, and I've always been really ambivalent about gay bars. I like them and hate them at the same time. I have really unresolved feelings about them. And in coming to write this book, I have uh, I have come to terms with my ambivalence. I have come out as being solidly ambivalent about gay bars, <laughs> and I I'm proud to say I'm ambivalent.
0: One of the things that you mentioned right then was also about this kind of like interest from the public, like, queer publics, but also non queer publics about kind of queer spaces, but also this kind of question around disappearance. I think there's some a bit of like a media fixation, particularly around the disappearance of the lesbian bar. And you've written a bit about like the closing of lesbian bars. And I'm wondering what you attribute this to and how your account differs from some of the common narratives we see about the disappearance of the lesbian bar.
1: So. I have been critiqued by a colleague for having a deficit model of community and focusing on disappearance. I don't talk about disappearance because, I mean, maybe it was, you know, just a recognition that they're not disappearing. They're never going to go away. But I counted in national guidebooks the number of gay bars in the country by city from 1972 now up to 2021. So I have, is that nearly 50 years of mm-hmm. data about yeah. rates of change? And I just have rates. And so there has been a steep decline. Um, mm-hmm. The United States, at least if we're using business listing, lost half of its listings for gay bars between 2002 and 2021. So in a 19-year period, half the day bar listings are gone. So that's a really dramatic change. And in response to my critic, I would say soft selling, a 50% decline is not serving the community very well. I'm more interested in other questions, however. Uh, I don't think that ours are disappearing. They are changing. They have changed a lot over the 20th and 21st century. So it's nothing new. Also, the queer community has gone through other cataclysms and has come through. And so I don't think that the loss, you know, I think framing this as a loss is um, not necessarily true. But I do think it is representative that Queer people's relationship to physical places is changing, and it has changed dramatically, especially with the advent of smartphones and the explosion of online media. Uh, when I was a kid, the only gay media there was, you had to go to a city and find a bookstore or a free paper, and that was the only place you could find any gay media. Now, We can all, like you can go find non-binary TikTok and you can watch non-binary people on TikTok living their lives for an hour at any time of the day or night. And that is wonderful. So I'm not opposed to the fact that much of our queerness is now being expressed and consumed online. But as a sociologist, and back to the idea of a thirst space, There is something that happens in public when two bodies are co-present in the same physical space that's special. I think as humans, I think we need that. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown orders sort of reminded us of how much we need our physical spaces. I was really moved in the pandemic by how many people were like writing these rhapsodies about their grocery stores. I'm like, oh, I just missed picking out toothpaste in the aisle. And it's like nobody before the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, was like rhapsodizing about the grocery store. It was just an errand. But there is something about being with other people that humans need, and that cannot be satisfied online necessarily.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things you just talked about too was the changing, not just, you know, between online and offline away from keyboard kinds of community building, but also how the bars themselves have changed. I know that you've written a bit about how lesbian bars sometimes have adapted to be more like queer bars. And there's other scholars who have written about this as well. Um, but something that I wonder if you can tease out a little bit is that we still see a lot of gay men's bars, um, whereas like lesbian bars have somewhat shifted to queer spaces. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and also about kind of other changes changes that you're seeing within these physical spaces.
1: Sure, so um, lesbian bars are a rare species. Um, there is a really great project called the Lesbian Bar Project for the United States that finds 21 of them. I think there's actually more than that, but whatever. There's 21 lesbian bars in the United States and You know, if we think about the fact that there's two of them in New York City and two of them in Oklahoma City, no other city has more than one, which means if they aren't as welcoming to you, whoever that you is, it means you have no space in your whole region. So that's important. What surprised me in counting up the number of lesbian bars in the country over time is that they peaked around 1987. The big collapse in the number of lesbian bars happened between 1987 and 1992, when they went from about 206 down into the 60s. So way more than half of the lesbian bars closed back then. And at the same time, there was this dramatic surge in bars that were serving men and women together. Mm. It was also during that time period that bars just for gay men they also saw a steep decline. However, that was also during the depth of the AIDS crisis. So we would have expected there to be some decline in gay bars, but we wouldn't have expected a decline in lesbian bars necessarily. So, um, there was a dramatic rise in, I won't call them all gender spaces because the, the guidebooks just say men and women together. We don't know whether this was begrudging that the men were condescending to the two women who came to the bar, or we don't know whether it was a bar that had Friday night, women night, Saturday night, men's night, kind of mm-hmm. se- segregated, but sharing a building. Or we don't know whether it was just that on Saturday night, one side of the room was mainly women, one side was mainly men, and everyone partied together. Um, we don't really know, but the gender segregated lgbtq plus spaces declined really dramatically during the late 80s and early 90s and the men and women together spaces became the most common type of lgbtq plus bar beating out the men only spaces that said there's still a lot of men only spaces and i think we can attribute that to men have more money they have way less care responsibilities they're far less likely to have children from a previous relationship or to have uh, a partner or, who has a child um men it's easier for them to start businesses they get more advantageous loans they're more likely to be taken seriously they're raised to be more entrepreneurial and think that setting out on their own is something they can do so There's a lot of gender socialization and sexism that's built into the business environment that allows men to have spaces. Similarly, when you've got a business, when you're selling to a community that has less money, like the women and non-binary and trans community does, then when there's an economic downturn, your profits dry up so much faster than other businesses. And I think to some degree that explains that there's also just the fact that I think in the men's community, if there is such a thing as the men, the gay men's community, um, probably because they have some resources, it has insulated them from the need to be inclusive. Mm. And I think in bigger cities, you can be kind of a chauvinistic gay male space and still make it mm-hmm. in a way that you cannot. I don't think a woman-only lesbian bar I never found one anymore, and I don't think they can exist. I don't think they can survive. Um, I think younger queer people don't want a single gender space. I think some older LGBTQ plus folks do, especially some men, and they can manage that. But uh, that's not where the future lies. That's something of the past, I would say.
0: Um again, so much richness in all those things that you just said. One thing that also really stood out in your answer was some of the methodological challenges of using guidebooks or these listings of businesses, right? There's so much that's unknown in them sometimes. It's something that I also use in my own research. And you'll sometimes just see that, you know, I'll just say bar or like one or two details. And, you know, you can't really tease all of that information out. So. Again, any of these lists are that we compile or these mapping projects that we do, there's always going to be an asterisk of like, this is based off of the best we can do with the information we have. Um, And you've embarked on some mapping as well. Um, Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your um, 2006 to 2006 mapping and why you thought it was important to have a physical map of lesbian bars?
1: So, I was interested, as as my undergraduate research assistants were going through and counting up lesbian bars first, I was surprised that we found so many back in 1987. I mean, and it was surprising for a couple reasons. One was, I guess I never expected there to have been as many as 206 in the country. So that was a surprise. But secondly, the, the Damron guidebook that I was using, that for the United States is the only national and longest published physical guidebook of LGBTQ plus Um The other thing that really surprised me was the Damron guidebook itself was published by and for men. Mm -hmm. Bob Damron started the guidebook back in 1964 because he wanted to get laid when he was on the road. And other people, other gay men, It was cis gay men wanted to get laid. And so he was making a little black book where people could go and get laid. So in 1987, it had become this national company that was doing Mm -hmm. really well. They were doing gangbuster business. But I was surprised that they would even bother to count lesbian bars. Mm. Um, They had no women on the payroll at the time. There wasn't a woman on the payroll until 1991. and that was Gina Gatta, who is mm-hmm. the current publisher since 1992. Um, basically, their office was decimated by HIV AIDS. Um, mm-hmm. And she took over the company, inherited it, and has carried it through till at least 2019, when they published their most recent guide. Um, but it surprised me that there were so many. And while I was doing my Googling around, I found a blog that was calling the great lesbian bar die And I was curious, was that true? And mm-hmm. using that blog and other internet sources, I just started mapping the lesbian bars and tagging them by year that they disappeared to mm-hmm. see, uh, was it, was it a big sudden thing? Was this a gradual thing? Um, and then I had an undergraduate research assistant who really was, uh, charmed by this project and they were the one who sort of took it over for me and did a lot of the. Um, i asked them to go to google maps go to street view and take a screenshot if it would still show the old bar because mm. google street view is constantly updating itself mm-hmm. and for some of these closed bars you could still see that it had a rainbow light sign in the window, or that there was uh, uh, a, a flag with a labras flying over the building, or something like that, like, you, you could see some evidence of queerness. And so we captured those images and put them online. And that's why I did that.
0: Amazing. Um, and, and we touched on this a bit, but you've previously written about how drinking establishments are, to quote you, an important, are important to urban economies by nurturing urban subcultures. And with the loss of the lesbian bar and different bar spaces, do you see other businesses and organizations fitting in this role?
1: Absolutely. So um, one other reason why I think there's so few lesbian bars is cultural. The women's community was always more skeptical of capitalism, always had more radical and progressive politics than did most of the gay men's community. And there was a sobriety movement back in the 80s among the women's community to stand in solidarity with sisters in recovery and so it was the women's community that really went and created a lot of these other institutions such as the feminist restaurants that you study and the feminist cafes or the bookstores the community centers the d- domestic violence shelters you know there was this really rich uh, ecosystem ecosystem of feminist um, institutions. So I think some of those have filled that role. And I really like Spin Anke's work. I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm pronouncing their name right, but mm-hmm. um, Finding the Movement is such a great book that shows both the the growth of this ecosystem of feminist places, but also the sort of internal contradiction.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the findings that I use that book for all the time was, if you read the lesbian bar literature, there's always this generational expe- uh, explanation that old bar dykes were um, not political and young feminists were political. And the thing I love about that explanation is it it's consistent over 60 years. Back in the 50s, the Daughters of Belitis said, we're going to make an alternative to the lesbian bar and we're going to be the political lesbians and those old bar dykes are going to do their thing. And then in the 70s, you have, we are the lesbian feminists. We are going to make a bookstore and leave those old bar dykes over to their thing. And then you have in the early 90s, we're the young queers. We're going to make a movement and those old bar dykes are going to do the Well, those old bar dykes, they survive. Like mm-hmm. generations and generations, there were, there were old bar dikes and it wasn't the same 30 women running around keeping those bars open.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: Finanke's work shows that there was always crossover and mm-hmm. these really strict generational explanations just don't hold. And so I think this is also the case for these other institutions. I think other people are popping in and out. If, if the feminist bookstore, you know, throws a dance party in the storeroom. Mm -hmm. Some gay men show up. Now they might not support the bookstore very much, but that's where moments of community crossing. That's where I don't know if thirst spaces have the democratic leveling that Oldenburg sort of thinks they have. Mm -hmm. They have, but I do think that they are places where you have encounters with difference. And I think that the, I think Oldenburg romanticizes this. That mm-hmm. he thinks that I've encountered difference and now I'm more understanding. Whereas you and I know sometimes I encounter difference and I microaggressed. Or <laughs> I encountered difference and I was an asshole. Um, yeah. But I think it's through those frictions that community sort of resolves itself and coalesces. And I think that that's why these other institutions, you know, as much as I'm focused on bars, bars only exist as one part of an ecosystem but I think they're kind of an ignored part because they're private business.
0: Mm-hmm. I love your way of capturing this kind of ecosystem. And something that I talked about in my own work is this idea of the feminist nexus. And I think both your concept of the ecosystem and the nexus kind of remind us that we're talking about actual people who don't just go to one place every day. Right. People go to a bookstore and they can go to a bar and they can go to a restaurant and then they might organize together and co-host things. Like I think sometimes in certain historical narratives, the humanness of experience is kind of left out. And so I think uh, both your framing of ecosystem and their space is really useful here um, and helps us kind of um, complicate some of these narratives in really useful ways. And I know that you already touched on COVID-19's impact a little bit, but I know that you've recently released some work about COVID-19's impact on LGBTQ bars. So I was just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit.
1: Sure. So um, I had data from this Damron guide. And if your listeners are interested, they can go to mappingthegayguides.org. There's a really great public history project there where they have mapped the early Damron guides. And for the United States, you can go to any city and look at uh, what kinds of LGBTQ plus spaces, not just bars, but cruisey parks, bookstores, affirming churches, like any kinds of places in a business guide, go to mappingthegayguides.org. Um, but because I had this Damron data from ni- 2017 to 2019, I had this two year period before COVID-19. And in 2021, with again some very talented undergraduate research assistants, we went to verify the 2019 data from Damron to see were were the bars listed still active and had any new gay bars opened in those cities. And it took us like five months. Um, But what we found was that between 2017 and 2019, 15% of the listings went away. Between 2019 and 2021, 16% of the listings Mm -hmm. went away. So I would say this is, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, type news. Like on the one hand, a 16% loss in a two year period is is again, not a disappearance, but there's only 84% of the, of the bars that we had before. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the decline was flat. I would have expected a real acceleration during COVID. Um, We had seen an acceleration between 2012 and 2017. There was a dramatically steeper decline than there had been previously. Mm. So it suggests to me that the decline was bottoming out, if not for the coronavirus pandemic. And I think it suggests that the LGBTQ plus bars that were still around had already weathered a lot of change and so had some resources, whether that be community goodwill and crowdfunding, or whether it be they were already creative about knowing what the local community wanted. And that was the the other part of my research that we didn't really talk about was I drove around the country and interviewed gay bar owners. I interviewed 130 gay bar owners and managers in 39 states. and. I was surprised at how hyper local gay bars are. Back to your point about this is about real people. Like the real people in one town like bingo. The real people in the town over like karaoke. Now, yes, the karaoke fans will drive from the region to go to karaoke, but there's also a lot of advantage to just popping down to your local, to your local spot. And so, um, I think the, one, the bars that had survived had owners and managers who were really tapped into what their local community wanted and were able to respond in that way to keep themselves open.
0: Well, this has been such an amazing conversation with such a wealth of knowledge that you've shared and what a like amazing trove of research that you've done on so many different levels. Um, so thank you so much for being here and being part of this. Was there anything else you want to add that we didn't touch on?
1: I'll just say that if you're interested in more, you can go to my website, GregorMatson.com, or you can just Google Who Needs K-Bars, which is the title of my book that will come out in 2023.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. And we'll include those links in the transcript and show notes. So thank you so much, Gregor. This has been such a pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me so much. It was so great to be here.
0: As I mentioned the topic of LGBTQ plus bar spaces and how it's inspired numerous researchers, scholars, activists, and artists, we're now going to talk to Indy Mitchell of the Last Call New Orleans Collective. Indy is a Louisiana-based performance artist, queer Black feminist, and cultural worker interested in experimental and community-centered work rooted in collective liberation and healing. Indy has performed with various dance and theater companies, and has recently found themselves working in art administration and organizing roles more they understand the shift as a critical response to injustice faced by black tgnc so transgender and gender non-conforming people in the united states and will continue to fight for our liberation especially through the lens of art making and performance until we win india's co-director of last call an oral history and arts collective and is on the cultural organizing team at alternate Roots is the co-director of Loud Youth Theater and organizes with the Black Mutual Aid Project in New Orleans. I also wanna add that I had the pleasure of knowing Indy from our time at Wesleyan University during our undergraduate degrees. Indy will be giving us more detail about Last Call, but for those of you who haven't heard of the organization, it is a collective of trans and queer artists and archivists. Drawn together by the closing of the last remaining Dyke Bar in New Orleans, Last Call creates innovative, multi-platform performances, events, and digital media that document and interpret neglected trans and queer history in New Orleans, Louisiana, and around the U.S. South. There are four interwoven components to last call. The first, a digital archive of full-length interviews. The second, a podcast series to cold these interviews into curated stories. The third, live performance that honors these stories. And the fourth, community events that bring together queer people across lines of race, class, gender identity, and generational difference. Hi, Andy. Thank you so much for being here. Can you start by saying your name, your pronouns, if you wish, and a bit about yourself?
2: Sure, for sure. Thanks for having me. So my name is Indy. Um, my pronouns are they, them, and he, him, his. And um, yeah, I'm an artist person. I am a, a maker of things, I like to say. I like to make, and I'm a maker of spaces. Um, yeah. And I, I'm i really interested in the process of making things with groups of people. Um more so than the actual outcome, even though the performance part is important. And yeah, there's something about the intentionality around like how we make things with people that I think is really interesting and um, can be used as you know seeds for all different types of things.
0: And along with that, with making things, mm-hmm. you're involved with Last Call New Orleans. Can you tell us a bit about how and why Last Call got started?
2: Yes, for sure. So um, back in 2012, uh, there was a group of youngish queer theater makers who were really interested in this idea or just curious about where all the lesbian bars were going. Um, At the same time, Ruby Fruit Jungle, uh, one of the, well, at that time, the only lesbian bar space that was open in New Orleans had just closed. Um, And yeah and that act kind of led to some folks asking some folks about things specifically some older folks about things um which kind of opened the door to to last call um we ended up doing or have still been doing different interviews with elders um who attended bars in the 60s and 70s and some folks in the 80s as well in new orleans um and yeah just like got to know both those people and uh, a lot of the different spaces that existed and um, and how those spaces were like used as both like places for people to like socialize and meet people, et cetera, et cetera. But also there was so many other things that were happening in the bars. Um, it was like a place for activism. Um, it was a place uh, for, yeah, also like low key is a place where harm happened um, into personal harm and conflict happened to. Um, and so, yeah, after we talked to people because we're theater makers, we were like, we're gonna make a play about it. And yeah, out came the alleged lesbian activities after many, 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 like many, many different uh, variations of like, how do we play with these interviews? Who's playing with these interviews? And, um, and like, what does it mean to like honor these stories and honor the people and the, the space right now. And yeah, from that came Alleged Lesbian Activities, which was a full-length musical production that featured different voices of the interviews that um, we conducted over the years.
0: And Last Call does so many amazing things with these rich histories. For Last Call, which started out as the New Orleans Dyke Bar History Project, how are you all defining dyke? And whose histories are you including with this project? You touched on that a little bit, but I'm wondering if we can dig into this a bit more. And I'm thinking here of the different speakers' voices that come out in the Coming Out Stories Multimedia Dance performance you did, in which spokes speak of being bisexual or calling oneself bisexual, loving women, coming out as trans, using the term gay, and being a lesbian.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so we started as the Dyke Bar History Project because that was what we were researching and we used that term dyke because that's what the people were calling it that we were talking to. Um, and so specifically we were thinking, I think part of why we ended up shifting our name and um, and dropping the dike bar part in um, part was because dyke is you know a very specific uh, community of people, which we do think, yeah, like, I think it's important to uphold and uplift lesbians are important. Um, And, and amongst like this, like history that we have, like, a lot of our histories are told from a gay male perspective. So it does feel important. I feel like a lot of what has been keeping last call moving and going throughout the years is asking this question of like, whose story isn't being told? Who's like, like, who's at the center of this work that we're doing um and yeah even within like the 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 world of dyke we understood initially or always even that like there were so many more than just lesbians um who were coming to these spaces um like these spaces were also places that uh other like trans people existed in um and like and especially as like as we start to talk about like the differences of like the white lesbian or dyke bar scene and like the black lesbian or gay woman scene. Um, Yeah, I think in the black scenes especially, we see that like there's a mix, like there's always been a mix of gay men and like trans women and drag queens and uh, transvestites as folks would like identify themselves at that time who like kind of like a company, they occupy the same spaces. So again, as we continue to ask this question of like, who's at the center, who's doing this work, um, it's made sense for us to, like that's how our research has been shifting as well. So our second research project, um, which was housed in histories for Futures, uh, was focused around spaces of activism and resistance in the eighties and the nineties. And we intentionally were working To find um, spaces of like black and people and and different POCs. Um, And yeah, learned a lot from that and like didn't actually produce a play from that, but produced a lovely podcast season that folks can check out if they want to. And um, in this like newest season, so we're starting our new or have started our newest round of research, um, which is housed in a creative fellowship that's focusing around, uh, spaces of black trans joy.
0: So you've been touching on some of the work that last call has been doing. How do you think that the various components of last call with the archive of interviews, the podcast, the live performances and the community events work together? Do you see them as interdependent or independent? And do you see them as addressing different audiences? Or what is some of the reasoning behind having so many types of outputs?
2: That's a great question. I definitely think that they're interdependent um, because at the end of the day, it's all coming from the histories, the stories, the conversations that we have um, with our interviewees. Um, And I think the idea of having multiple outputs is yeah, just to like try to reach as many people as possible and like as many ways as possible, knowing that like we knew like when we were going and creating our first bit of work, um, Alleged Lesbian Activities, um, there were so many gems that we wanted to like feature in the show uh, and the theater production can only be but so long Um, and so the podcast acted as like an amazing like you know additional platform in which we can share some of these stories um with our community and and honor the, the interviewees because at the end of the day it really is about them um and it's about the work that we're doing in the, with the people in the present too and like so all that feels like this really important exchange um i think that's part of why we continued after our first research project is because there was so much Like, in addition to making this beautiful show to share with our community, there were so many connections and memories and um, and conversations. And this, like, spaces, like, held that felt very special and dear to our community. And we wanted to continue to create those type of spaces.
0: And along with that and the importance for your community... Why do you think it's so important for people to understand these histories of dyke bars or larger like LGBTQ spaces in New Orleans?
2: Um, I think that there's this like myth that uh, queerness doesn't exist in the South or hasn't existed in the South. So it feels really important that our, um, that our work is like rooted in the South uh, because yeah like Folks, we've always been here. <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, and I think when we when we think about queer history, we think about um, things and events and spaces that exist in larger cities, like either in New York or the Bay Area, San Francisco. Like those are like the meccas. And I also think that New Orleans is like a mecca of sorts to for queer people. Like. Um, and I think that happens all over and not just in New Orleans. I think that that's how urban spaces function for a lot of like, like I think of myself even as like, I am originally from Virginia, like a smaller rural town in Virginia and found myself to, in an urban space because it felt like a space where I could find more people like me or find um, community for myself outside of my bio family.
0: Amazing. And Okay, so I've become a super fan of all Last Call's outputs. I li- I couldn't stop listening to all of the podcast episodes and I wish I could have seen the performances in person. And for listeners, you can watch clips of these performances on Last Call's website. And when I was watching clips from the performances such as alleged lesbian activities, in the clip about Frankie's bar, which you're in. I love the way that you all used voiceover pulled directly from the oral history interviews, and it really made the history come alive for me as a viewer. Can you speak a bit more about the creative process in creating these performances?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, so the interviews were, that's where we started. We started first with listening. Uh, We would listen to different, clips around like different themes, or we would um, assign different interviews to different people, like really depend on like, yeah, what the project or process was. And yeah, and then we'd figure out ways to reflect that back into our personal lives, whether that be through some sort of like embodied performance movement situation or character building things, um, or through like different writing assignments and stuff too. So yeah, the interviews is where it started. And, and from the interviews, we found the characters and from the characters, we found the story. And um, and very early on, we were experimenting with this idea of like incorporating the interviews as like an external voice that also, because again, it just felt so important for people to like hear it out of their own mouths. And, um, and I'm glad we decided to continue with that route, because um, as you said, I was like in the show and because I, w- I played Frankie, who was the bartender, I kind of was like a anchor and was on stage a lot. And I got, um, even if I wasn't like an active player on stage, I was just kind of like there in the background doing things at the bar. Um, and in those moments I, I was able to like witness um, some of our interviewees in the audience, like hearing themselves um, or, or like seeing their story or reflections of their stories um, in real time. And I think that moment felt like such a gem and such a precious gift to like just like being able to experience and to think that your story or that your experience is important enough to be modeled um, and like performed back at you. And and it was this interesting experiment too to see how people would react because some people, yeah, or some people would get really emotional and some people would get really shy and clammy and <laughs> nervous and yeah, it's kind of my fun game that I like to play throughout that performance, <laughs> how are people are going to react.
0: <laughs> That's so cool. And in that clip of alleged lesbian activities, viewers can see the relationships between the, the different characters on stage. And it brings up the tensions between different LGBTQ cultures around uh, queer and different aspects of queer spaces and events with different bar cultures, cabaret, and these interpersonal dynamics between individuals. Something that I've heard come up in many of the episodes of the Last Call podcast is while there was and is interpersonal conflict and issues of racism and classism within dyke bars and queer spaces in New Orleans, you and other folks involved in Last Call talk about the importance of queer spaces, and you have already touched on that a bit during this interview, uh, for listeners, I'm thinking here of—and I'm going to plug Last Call's podcast episodes a bit here—I'm thinking of Season 1, Episode 5, The Way They Go, Season 2, Episode 6, Stories from the Boston Dyke Bar Scene, and the bonus episode of Last Call for Creating Place, where you talk about how people are always asking you, when are you going to open a dyke bar? And you pose this question in these episodes kind of back to people who ask you this— Is a dyke bar what we need? In those episodes and others, you talk about how important queer spaces are for community building and how you'd like to see intergenerational sharing. But I'd like to ask you the question that you raised. What kind of queer spaces would you like to see and build if not a dyke bar?
2: Yeah, I think about this a lot. Um, And in the more recent past, I've been very interested in spaces for people to, bo- to like, rest and create together. Um, and, yeah, and I'm also thinking about, like, I've been thinking a lot about, like, where do our elders retire to, especially folks who, um, yeah, maybe who don't have children or maybe don't, or, like, aren't financially, like, in the best place or where they could be or don't own property or don't own land and stuff like that. Um, and so yeah, sometimes I dream about some sort of space out and some sort of like more ruled like space that, um, elders could retire and like live there. And then also at the same time, they could also run some sort of like residency incubator program uh, for young folks and then that would create some sort of exchange. I also I love that your topic is all about like restaurants and because um, I think that that's perfect too. I think like spaces for people to eat and for people to gather and for people to make things. Um, I think about spaces. Yeah. For people to just like be without having to like purchase something also. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> whether and I I don't know if it's like a community center or like like I love a you know a classic lesbian bookstore or feminist bookstore, shall we call it? (laughs) Or both, you know? Um, So spaces like that where people can gather, where people can have small events if they want to. And places, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think housing is such a crucial issue, not just for like our young folks, but also for our elders. Um, So I also think about, yeah, what are some longer term solutions that could, you know, help house people. Maybe it is like housing or apartment housing or some sort of like big house that gets broken down into apartments that's like specifically for elders and youngers.
0: That sounds really beautiful. There are now two seasons of the podcast, which again, highly recommending for folks to check out. And it's such a wonderful way to share these oral histories. And I love that also as part of the Queer Histories, Queer Futures workshop programs and the new fellowship. Last Call also trains folks in technical skills and audio editing and podcasting. And then the workshop participants conduct and transcribe interviews with elders in the queer community and remix those interviews into new episodes. Can you speak a bit about the decision behind having these workshops, the fellowship and the community building that is part of this work?
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um as a cultural organizer I, I really think that making and creating art is a way to help organize and mobilize and liberate our people and um and I just in like the process for myself like coming in and like doing like I came into Las Callas as a performer you know what I mean? And like as a collaborator, like I was in the, the room helping to make, like just listening to the interviews and helping to make characters and make the play, you know? Um, and yeah. And then as I continued working with with the org and with the group, I don't know, there was just, I, was, I could see and understand the, the importance of just like different skills that I was getting and wanted to share that with other people, whether it would be for like, the use of Last Call to, to have like new collaborators. I feel like it's a great way for us to bring new folks into our group. Um, or if it's just like for you to do your own podcast or do your own theater show or interviews for whatever it is that you're doing. Um, yeah, it just always makes sense to me to share whatever knowledge or skills that I have with with my people um, knowing that like, <laughs> they could use it uh, for whatever it is that they need. Um, so yeah, um, after, yeah, I think as the leadership shifted, uh, to be me and my co-director now, which is, who is Natalie Nia Falk, um, who's also an amazing, like has a history in like public history and, and cultural organizing, um, and healing justice work. And yeah, I think it's just, it was the thing that made the most sense, uh, for the work and, for the future and for like us, like these are the, these are the, the programs that we want to be a part of, um, or like, yeah, that I wish I could <laughs> like, yeah, that I wish that everyone could have access to.
0: Awesome. And where can people learn more about your work and more about Last Call in New Orleans?
2: Yeah. So you can check us out on our website. It's lastcallnola.org.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Indy. It was so great to have you on and it's great to reconnect with you.
2: Same, same. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I'm excited to check out and geek out on all of these episodes that's coming out soon.
0: For more information about Gregor Matson, Indy Mitchell, and Last Call New Orleans, please see the links in our show notes and transcript. I've linked to The Place We've Always Wanted to Go But Never Could Find, Finding Women's Space in Ontario's Feminist Restaurants and Cafes, 1974 to 1982, in the show notes and transcript. Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a food and queer history podcast, will continue next week. Please follow the podcast to be notified of new updates. All transcripts are available at thefeministrestaurantproject.com. My book, Ingredients for Revolution, A History of American Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffee Houses, is coming out fall 2022 from Concordia University Press. You can receive 20% off pre-orders with the discount code Ketchum20. I've included a link in the show notes and transcript. An open access version will also be released a bit later. Thank you to my co-producer, Sadie Couture, for your editing assistance. Thank you to Sarah Nandy for proofreading the transcripts. I also want to thank Tyler Antoine for making the music for this podcast. Thank you also to Shark for the Insight Grant, which supports making my scholarship available in more accessible forms. And of course, thank you all for listening. We can't wait to see you again next week.